All right. So uh, take two. Um, uh, welcome to Call and Shots again, still. Um, we had some slight recording issues as we were starting. Uh, I'm Seth Partnow. I am joined by my uh, Triumph uh, Books uh, cousin in publishing, not brother in arms, cousin in publishing, Mike Prada. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm good. Cut. Wait, why am I not just like a brother in arms? Is it not know. a close it's... enough affiliation? I, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm making up relations as we go along. Uh, for those yeah. that don't know, I, I bring this up, is, is uh, Mike's uh, forthcoming book, uh, Spaced Out, uh, just went on, on pre-sale status uh, about, about two weeks ago? Yeah, right? something like that. I mean, honestly, it's not coming out until November 1st and maybe later, depending on publishing deadline, you know, difficulties. So I'm kind of amazed it's already out on pre-order already. But yes, you can pre-order it. Uh, this was, I mean, it was about the same time frame. Uh, we, again, as I mentioned, he has being spaced out, is being published by Triumph, who is also the publisher of my book. And uh, having read about the first, I don't know, third of it um, uh, with the uh, the sort of the galleys copy you were you were kind enough to, or the, the preview uh, draft you were kind enough to share with me, um, it really seems like it's a... Um, Almost a a, compa- a good companion book to mine. I, certainly, there's a lot of places where if your book had come first, it would have saved me some time because I could have just <laughs> like block quoted and refer- referenced some things that you're talking about. So, um, so yeah. So, so let's start by just you know talking about what uh, what what you wrote about and and what you hope people get out of it. Yeah. No. I mean, it, I think when um, they approached me about this book they actually talked about how they had your book already in development and they saw this as a really good sort of compliment and um they didn't think it would overlap because i mean obviously that was one of my concerns is i i was like i mean how do i make sure this is not seth's book um but i think it yeah i mean i think a lot of it is um they pitched it to me as kind of like how do you watch basketball like a smarter person kind of like they have a uh they have a football book like that i think it's by Oh, what the, what's the guy's name? It's called Take Your Eye Off the Ball. Maybe people know about it. Um, and they were saying, like, hey, we're looking to do a basketball version of this. And I looked at that book. Uh, we talked through the idea, and I sort of thought, well, that book is kind of good, but not really exactly what I wanted to do. I think I wanted to do something that was a little bit more blending multidisciplinary, like kind of blending analytics, blending film, blending history, you know. And it just occurred to me, like, I've been thinking this for a few years, and I think you probably would agree. I really think that what's happened over the last, since the Warriors emergence, like at the very, and even, like we were building up to this point, but really in the last eight years, like the game has changed in a way that I don't think we fully have wrapped our heads around. Like I, the way I frame it in the book is that imagine you're playing on a surface that's 20 by 35 feet or 20, what I don't know, whatever, 22 by 35 feet or 50. 50 feet, 22 by 50 feet, I'm mixing up numbers. You know what I mean, like the three-point line. And then suddenly you say, well, actually, now we're playing on a surface that's 40 by 20 by 50 feet. Like, that would change so much about how the game works. And yet I don't think there's even been a full reckoning of, like, well, now that we're playing on a surface that's way bigger, what does it mean for things as simple as schemes, strategies, and even player skills? And I just think... It's the kind of thing that, like, we have not wrapped our heads around in any way. And so the goal of this book is ultimately to be like, okay, this is what basketball is now. We have to throw out all assumptions. Now let's rebuild and rethink, like, what does it mean to be, to have, what are the different fundamentals of the sport? What are the different strategies? And so it's kind of part how we got there, part strategic. And then I think the last part is is more player-specific skill-wise and how all of that has changed because we basically widened the playing surface. And I think that ends, um, this is something that I wrote about in mine a little bit, and you cover it in, in greater detail, I think, in, in, in the parts I've read of yours, is that um, some of this is not, it's, there, there's this, the strategy in the larger court area, but also sort of the rule set that, that almost, um, I don't know, it deprecates the right word, but eliminates, devalues whatever, sort of the unskilled tryhard. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, definitely. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, no, I think that's it. I mean, these sorts of things, I think the expansion of the court is entirely, and you've talked about this a lot, it's a response to rule changes and incentives. But what what I found interesting about, like, this period is that these sorts of things didn't kick in right away. Like, it took a little while for people to 
realize what it meant that there's their legal sorry their legal defense is what it is you know now or it's not allowed anymore what does it mean that you can hand get the hand check is allowed i don't think we really it took a little while for these rules to really change the game but they now you look back and it's like these rules have completely changed the game uh, the biggest one to me still is is like it is this i think still like people don't totally understand this is like it used to be you had to if a guy was standing in a place in the court you had to you had to make believe that player was a threat you had to guard them um and that's you know it's it's sort of um if the ethic of making professional basketball is to make it like in some ways resemble like the highest level sort of open run anyone's ever played in just with the world's best athletes like everyone's played in that game where there's a guy you just don't need to guard and you just don't guard him. And that's like that team probably loses because there's, they're playing four on five. And the fact that you used to be able to have send Mark Eaton and have him stand on the opposite side of the court and the other teams, whether team would have to guard him. Um, and, and now you just, well, okay, he's that guy can't even see that far. Why am I standing near him? So let me go like get in the play and mess everything up. Um, that I think that's that's certainly a change for the good to me because the more players who can do more things on the court, the better the basketball is. Yeah, no, I am one hundred percent with you on a it's better and b how fundamentally that has transformed the sport. What's interesting in doing research on this, going back to the discussion around that rule change in two thousand one. One of the things that a lot of the people who were resistant to the changes of allowing zone defense were saying is that this is actually going to neuter superstars. I think Rudy Tomjanovich, there's a quote that he gave. He was one of the most outspoken folks against this, was saying, you've zoned people up, then superstars don't have the space to do the cool things that they do. So what I found, I found it really interesting that that was the rationale against zone. And then now 20 years later, it feels like what we've instead had is that we have a more of an appreciation for all the things that superstars did can do. You know, we, we see them manipulate the game in ways beyond just scoring and, you know, bring it almost as like you added the degree of difficulty for them up and that's forced them to level up. And I just think that's so interesting. And what that says about the state of the game that, you know, the same thing that was seen as the, wrong the thing that was stifle individual creativity has instead enhanced it i mean that to me that says it all about how the game has changed since then and not just like individual creativity but it goes hand in hand with like just the 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 higher the the, the skill level of even sort of the support players is so high now i i was first struck by this i think about 3 years ago when you know somehow the mavericks were playing and uh, somehow Dorian Finney-Smith ends up running like a like a an elbow pick and roll on the right side of the floor, and Dorian Finney-Smith's no one's idea of like a primary playmaker or anything, but he comes off this pick and roll and whips a blind pass to the weak side corner with one hand, and it's just like okay, if this guy is like that would be the equivalent of I don't know Mario Ellie, like like the, yeah. that that kind of like I can you even comprehend like a player of of similar stature. 10, 15, 20 years ago, like making that kind of play. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's funny. One of the things you had yet to read in one of the chapters that if you said you've gone through the first third of the book is that a hit on this exact thing. It's a golden age of passing in the NBA. Some of the passes that people make now, it, it, you talk about like a routine pass like that, that would have seemed absurd. Like how many times do you hear broadcasters and if you all remember sort of you're playing career as a kid's talk about like, you know, you can't throw the ball cross court, you know, it's going to get intercepted. You can't throw it cross court, but now like everybody throws the ball cross court and they do it in so many different ways. And it's now like a fundamental skill. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, when you spread the game out, you give everybody more room to breathe. You give everyone more room to do, to do stuff. You spread the, the court out, but you haven't added more players to the court. If you just think fundamentally about it, like, you still got to play five on five, but now you've added you've added that space. And I actually went through in this chapter, I went through a lot of like sort of vision studies and sensory processing studies, a lot of academic research there talking about sort of how do we see what we see? 
you know, what is our spatial awareness when we're looking at something? And one of the constant themes that has come up in all of those research is if you spread, you have fewer obstacles in the way, people literally see more stuff because it's easier to pick out distinct features. And it's very interesting to think about how they do that. I don't want to get too much away from that chapter. But the upshot essentially is, is that because of that, passing is just you see more stuff than you used to and you can manipulate more stuff than you used to. And it's just that the, there's no way that even if you had the passing skill of somebody in the 80s, like they just didn't have enough space to actually see all of these different avenues. And so passing is just a, some of the passes people make are totally absurd. One, because there's more room for the ball to get there, but two, because like because everything's spread out, it's a lot easier for the eye to pick up that distinct feature to know, hey, I've got this guy cutting, lifting from the corner to the wing or from the wing to the corner on the opposite side. And I know based on this tiny little movement that he's going to be there. So I can feel confident throwing this pass diagonally with one hand. And then you get into like, now I can throw this pass diagonally with one hand while looking at the other guys so that the defender who also has a clear line of sight is going to adjust to that cue and do that. And so that has just changed like the entire spatial geometry of passing in a way that, you know, I think is really fun to watch, but like, to me, it's like, you can't even compare a passer from the two, the 1990s or even the early two thousands or mid two thousands to a passer today. They're all just so much better because of that. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I think that, you know, I had Eric name on yesterday and we kind of talked through MVP ballots and we, we sort of agreed that you know he has a ballot. I don't. That you know he voted for 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 Jokic as MVP this year. And I think that you know we don't. We collectively do not appreciate like Jokic's place in sort of the the history of the game and as a passer, like in particular. Like he is, he's got a legit claim to be a top five passer of all time. Yeah, I mean, I would argue he is. I mean, if you think about like history as like everybody's getting better all the time, I think you could make an argument that he is the best passer of all time. Now, I know that that's not. I I mean, like that's a tough argument to make, but if you know, the passes he's able to make are not passes that Magic Johnson even was able to see. In part, and not because of anything innate, but just because of the the other part. The other piece of this too is when you talk about the feedback loop of visual film and watching film all the time and just seeing the game in a more like sort of broader view. I think because everybody's so spread out, you know, the average player now is like literally seeing the court more of the court than they used to because, and so it's become more of, I mean, good to take this all the way back full circle to the legal defense thing. Everybody's got to think of the game as a five on five game instead of sort of their one-on-one matchup where like the rules before with the illegal defense were almost like baiting people to think of basketball as a one-on-one game because it institutionalized, you know, you can send all your guys over here and we're just going to kind of play one-on-one here and you have your choices are to double team or to not help at all. So, yeah, I mean, it, what Jokic is doing, is, the thing that's I think really remarkable about Jokic, I mean, his passing is one thing, but just the ability he has to bring the ball up the floor to push the break. Yeah, to do it's almost like at this point all the other stuff Jokic does is like even more revolutionary than his passing. I know it's kind of a weird claim, but just it's crazy that someone that size can move that quickly, change ends that quickly, and still have the heft to dominate if he has to go inside. Sure, no, I mean he's you know I don't think I need I don't think I need we need to wax rhapsodic on 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 Jokic yeah. anymore. By the way, um, I'm 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 way, frankly like I'm I sorry. Would, go ahead. I would have voted for Giannis for MVP, by the way. Really? Well, yeah. You 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 Which are I a bigger fan. You're a bigger. Fr- Interesting. Yeah. A bigger friend of Bucks Twitter than the the Bucks own beat writer. So there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, but pe- I mean, the like, people man, like you could you could pick both. I don't. It's not like yeah. a huge difference or anything. Right. But I would have gone with Giannis. That's interesting. Um, maybe if we have time, we'll get into that. But I'm I'm frankly I'm a little MVP'd out. Oh, um, I don't know if there's a natural segue to, uh, you know, the basketball we're going to see again tonight, but I think that in some ways, the fact that, you know, that we're, we're watching these, the, the, the teams in the plan. And I think one of the differentiators, um, 
you know, there's there's kind of two kinds of differentiators from the teams that are, you know, play-in level teams and like already top six playoff level teams is, you know, on, on one hand, you know, the, the, the top teams tend to have the superstars, but on the other hand, that they also, you know, there will be players on the floor in the games tonight more so than in the playoffs proper that do have kind of the more limited skill set that we're that maybe we were used to seeing in the aughts and early 2010s, uh, more functional players than skillful players, yeah, to to kind of steal some some uh, some some soccer terminology. Uh, would you agree with that? I think yeah, for the most part. I mean, certainly Cleveland, especially without Jared Allen. I mean, there are just a lot of guys that they play that are limited offensive players. You know, Isaac Okoro is I, I'm actually a big fan of his. I think he's a really good defender and I think his offense will develop, but it hasn't developed yet. And then you look at like say Minnesota. And Minnesota is a team that has committed to this kind of wacky trapping defensive scheme in large part because of the defensive limitations of their best player, Carl Anthony Towns. You know, his inability to play in a drop, his sort of lack of foot speed, they have to sort of compensate by playing like this. Um, so in that sense, I totally agree um, on those teams. And then you look at Brooklyn, you know, they sort of have the opposite problem where they're, they've got a lot of offense guys and they got some defense guys, but they don't have the two-way impact players. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's a definitely a big factor in these matchups. You know, the Clippers are sort of an interesting antidote to this because they have a lot of guys that are kind of good at everything, but they don't have one great player other than Paul George. You know, so they, they've got a lot of like like Marcus Morris is in some ways like kind of the antithesis of what you're describing, where he's kind of he does have one signature skill, but his kind of value is that he's pretty good at a lot of things, but not great at any one thing. So that I'm really looking forward to that Minnesota matchup for that reason, because the Clippers sort of have a lot of chess pieces, but no king. I guess now they have George, so they sort of have a king. I, I don't know the the proper chess terminology exactly, but that's sort of how they've structured their team. And Minnesota is, I think, a lot more top-heavy, and they have more limited players behind their superstars, for sure. It'd be interesting, like, because Minnesota has more players that are are sort of, you know, I don't want to say single skill, but certainly players who um, part of the, the, the job Chris Finch has done this year is, is you know, getting not just, you know, getting good defense out of Carl uh, Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell, but, you know, getting functional play from Jared Vanderbilt, from Jaden McDaniels, from, you know, all these, these other guys who, you know, in a team that played more of a vanilla kind of style would be like, well, he can't do this and that, so he can't shoot, so he can't. He can't, you know, he doesn't handle the ball well enough, so he can't. Whereas, and I think that's an, sort of an opportunity for Ty Lue, who I think is one of the, you know, the great, the great tacticians uh, like in-game tacticians in the league to almost exploit something that that Minnesota has has turned something that's been a strength of Minnesota this year into a weakness. Um, that's I mean that's just my initial thought about that game. What 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 do you think? Yeah, I, I think I agree. I, I give the Clippers the edge in this game for a lot of the same reasons. I mean, with the one game scenario, I mean it's just so hard to know. There's so many factors that go into it. Like I. I just I love this playing concept because analytic as an analyst just because we've never seen anything like this in the NBA. Even a game seven, you've already played six games against this team, so like the elimination game element of it is just so unpredictable that I think we need a few years to know like kind of even think about conceiving of general trends. Like I find it interesting that last year the team that was the best playing team was Memphis, the youngest and theoretically the one that was should be least poised. But I do agree in general that. Minnesota's got a structure that has worked really well for 82 games. And Ty Lue is kind of one of the ultimate 16 game coaches where he sort of has all these pieces and he's willing to experiment a lot and he'll put you in a difficult position. So I do like, I don't think it's a good matchup for Minnesota. This, this game, I think Minnesota, but you know, who knows what the home crowd does and, you know, maybe someone like Jalen Noel will come in and hit six threes. I mean, that's the thing about an elimination game. But as a general rule, I do agree that the conditions of the postseason favor a Clippers team over a Wolves team. But I also don't know if that necessarily applies all the time to like young versus old. Like, um, you know, if the Clippers play New Orleans, for example, 
I think that would be an interesting matchup. New Orleans has given the Clippers a lot of problems this year. Uh, so I don't know what that would look like and whether that same old versus new paradigm would work the same way. But against Minnesota, just because, yeah, like you said, they have committed to a style that has, again, put their limited players in very good positions to succeed. But, you know, those are scabs that are easier to pick at in the play in a playoff or play and setting for sure. No, I, I totally. Um, the interesting thing of this year's playoffs is play in is that three of the four first matchups uh, feature teams that had winning records this year. I thought that was that, I mean that's it's sort of a, a especially in the East a weird season that everyone was large aside from kind of the Heat was largely bunched up in you know from mid forties to low fifties wins for any number of reasons. But um, that certainly that Minnesota um, Clippers game. Uh, a lot of the playing games we've seen over the first couple of years have seen like have seen a little thanks for coming. This seems like two legit playoff teams, and I'm not sure they're like, you know, maybe that's a that's a um, a concept that will lose some sort of currency as the play-in gets uh, more ingrained. But it does seem like these are these are like just better teams than we're used to seeing in these scenarios. Yeah, it's also contrasted teams that are really fun. Uh, you got a couple teams that have had championship aspirations if they were fully healthy in the Clippers and the Nets, but various injuries have tampered that. And then you've got sort of the up-and-coming young teams, you know, the Clevelands and Minnesotas and the Charlottes. And I, I'm very excited about New Orleans uh, just because I, you know, those are sorts of, in some ways, this is what the play-in should be. It should be this sort of battle between these teams that getting to the playoffs is super meaningful and giving that experience like on the upswing and then against teams that maybe are more like kind of those dangerous like you know if they make it here you got to watch out for them but underachieving I think it makes for a great contrast one of the reasons I also love the play and and I don't know this is like kind of going a little far afield but I'm I'm very curious to see how Memphis does this year is that it almost gives those young teams like a Memphis, like a Minnesota, it's like extra kind of like pressure moments that you would not have gotten in a previous sort of setting where they would one through eight. So Memphis, for example, has played three winner-go-home games in the last two years. And I think that gives them a huge leg up when they're in the crucible of a playoff setting where the pressure is on them, you know, again, whether it's a game set or not. So as far as you normally say, like, hey, a young team doesn't have this level of experience, you know, to handle that high pressure. Well, the Memphis has tons of that experience kind of baked in at an early age. And whatever happens to Minnesota going forward, Cleveland going forward, Charlotte going forward, you know, those teams, as they go on the upswing and they get better, are going to have this sort of almost playoff-like experience without having done anything in the playoffs. And I just wonder whether that means that these younger teams are going to hit the ground running when they get to the real postseason. And so this era of, you know, you got to wait your turn and go through the postseason lumps is just not going to be the same anymore. Or at least change what that means. Like the, like you say, the one, like going through a couple, couple three win-or-go-home games – will have be functionally similar to going through a playoff series perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's also it, it's also timing wise I can't help but think it's a nice uh it's a nice uh um antidote to some of the well, if NBA teams cared as much as they do in the NCAA tournament. It's like, well, you know, okay, the tournament ended 2 weeks ago. Here you go. What it did, like, you know, national championship game was was, you know, 8 days ago. Um here, yeah. Com- com- yeah. Compare compare this. Now you put you put these players with similar stakes, and which one, which which game is more intense and higher level and stuff like that. Which you know, I don't think we need to belabor the the silliness of the you know, college versus <laughs> NBA debates. I mean, if, like if you like college basketball more for whatever reason, like you grew up in Raleigh Durham or something like that, cool, great, awesome. But like, it's not. I don't think we should confuse ourselves that there's anything like quote unquote like better is a weird term but like higher level in terms of competition it's like it's ludicrous but yeah again i i'm with you i mean 
And I mean, the other thing too, like just as a, a before we get into, we can get into more into like sort of the nitty gritty of some of the matchups. Is it's just it gives those fan bases like another thing that they can celebrate from their season. That you know, it's not a literal accomplishment, but it's a moment. You know, Memphis beating Golden State last year was a moment, regardless of what happened. That they would not have had if they were just the nine seed and just missed the playoffs. You know, and whether you believe that that moment explains to some degree what's happened this year, or if it's just like a thing that Grizzlies fans are going to remember for the next five to 10 years is good for the NBA. So, I mean, it's, it, the play is an amazing concept. I'm a huge fan. I will say this. I am super looking forward to Atlanta Charlotte because to me, that is like the ultimate playing game between two exciting teams that are super flawed and kind of, I think that's going to be a super drunk basketball game and I cannot wait. <laughs> I, I'm 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 actually I'm frankly I'm I, the most likely way I think it's going to play out in the East is Atlanta wins twice and and Cleveland is out and that's going to bum me out because you know, yeah, Cleveland has been such a, a, a fun yeah. a fun like vibey team all year and then they they suffer some injuries and like a Hawks team that kind of didn't give a crap for a lot of the year despite not really having done anything then finds themselves in the playoffs um, yeah I, like. And you know, in in that scenario, they they're you know in with a chance at an upset, playing against a a Heat team that could you know score seventy points a game with no input of, from the opponent on any right. given night. Um, yeah, and, and Atlanta matches up well with Miami for sure. <laughs> like it's just they always have. You know, there's something about their style that is that's really tough for Miami to deal with the point of attack even. So yeah, there is that bummer, and then also you know. Brooklyn could just stop Cleveland and then win the next game. And, you know, then it just further devalues the, like, regular season and their growth. I'm, I'm bummed about Cleveland because I do think that if they had Jared Allen, like, I, I don't think that's a good matchup for Brooklyn at all. But, alas. I mean, I think if, if Jared Allen, I mean, I think if they, if Jared Allen hadn't gotten hurt, I don't think they're, they end up in the plan, plane anyway. So, yeah, that's true. But, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I mean, as is it, it was striking to me. I know that Brooklyn won that game that they played recently. I think Cleveland just sort of ran out of offensive players. I thought they they took out, they kept Isaac Okora on the floor too long, which allowed Brooklyn to overload on the drill penetration. But it was striking how easily Darius Garland was getting into the lane in that third quarter in particular. I mean, literally just slicing right through the middle every single time. And Brooklyn's nail defender is always so tiny, so he could just get wherever he wanted. And it was only when, you know, the Nets were like, oh, wait a minute. Cavs only have, like, two guys who can shoot. Let Maybe let's, like, creep in a little bit. And Cleveland didn't do the logical thing that I thought they should have done and gone to Chetty Osmond earlier. And, you know, maybe they'll make that – maybe they'll correct that this time and win. Who knows? That's the thing about one game. So uh, let's, let's, let's stick on that game for a little bit. And we've, you've mentioned Isaac Okoro a couple times. And it, 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 I can't help but, but you know – Harken back to when we're we're talking about the the guy who is like, you know, how important and like, you know, how big a piece would he have been, fifteen years ago, when like his defense, his size and defensive ability and athleticism, would have you know, uh, been so much more important relative to his his offensive limitations. And now and now it's like, well, I don't even know if this guy's playable in the playoffs. And that's, I think that's that, that if there's one player almost in these playing games who, who illustrates that change, it's got to be him. As of now, yeah. I mean, I think he's still so young. So I wouldn't. Oh, like, I, oh I yeah. No, this is not a, not a, not, not a permanent thing, just as of right now. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, his his skill set today. Like, if you were to play a game tonight, and they are, uh, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about Okoro is that when the Cavs structure was were super tall with Laurie and with Jared Allen and with Mobley, they were able to use their defense to generate offense. And he is a great transition player, Isaac Okoro. Like, he is great at pushing the ball in the open floor. You see, like, shades of Mikhail Bridges and the guy I wrote about for 538 today, Herb Jones, where, you know, you force a miss – and this is like an interesting, I'm, I'm actually wanted to ask you about this larger concept, but we can table that discussion. You want just like, what does it mean? What does a possession mean anymore? Is like kind of a, a big question that I have about like basketball going forward. But when they were able to get all these stops and run, Okoro's transition ability was like 
super valuable. Once you take away some of that size and you're not getting as many stops, and crucially, you're not sort of funneling people to the rim and then running off it, then, yeah, his inability to shoot. And, you know, he hasn't quite developed that sort of P.J. Tucker-esque, like, let me just bully the offensive glass if you try to hide a guy on me thing yet. Uh, it takes a lot away. And I also think that with Cleveland, like, the Karis LeVert thing hasn't really worked as well as I think they hoped. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if some of it is because of injuries and he's been in and out of the lineup, but, you know, he's such a limited skill. Like, it's interesting you talk about skill. Like, skill-wise, like, Karis LeVert is such a one-beat player that I think it has made it so that when he doesn't have the ball, what is he doing? And if he doesn't have the ball, people are creeping more over, you know, and so then when you combine that with Okoro, it's like it's easier to shrink the floor in general. So I, I think given all of those sorts of things, yes, I think Okoro is a really tough player to play in a playoff setting. But if the structure was a little bit different, like more like what it was, I think he'd have a better shot. So, but I mean, he's got to, he definitely has to improve offensively for sure. But, you know, a lot of these sorts of players, I think it just depends a lot on sort of what you're building around them. Like, and the when you have the whole structure collapse, it starts to reveal, like, I think some of the real holes in these guys' games. Sure. So if they, I mean, if if so, if Cleveland was like playing a more four four around one system, then like Okora being the like the, the the shooting weak link on the floor, maybe you get away with it. But if they're playing, you know, multiple bigs and you know one or more other non shooters, then all of a sudden it's it's it, there's like a tipping point effect. Yeah, and then you also add in like you don't have Allen to sort of be a possession recycler you know, and to yeah. set screen and roll and get downhill. Like, there are a lot of ways, I think, what's one of the interesting things that's happened is, like, kind of now everybody spreads out is that teams are finding, like, sort of more creative ways to create space. You know, I'm not saying the game isn't really compressing, but there's sort of, like, space is becoming way more of, like, a a three-dimensional type of thing. And so when you lose a guy who you can throw the ball up to wherever he is, and then he can drop it off quickly and he has that skill – it does alleviate some of the like kind of spacing concerns. It allows you to get more balls through tight windows. So to not have Jared Allen on the floor and to have a spacing problem now, suddenly, yeah, like Okoro's weaknesses like really stand out. So you were going to, I didn't, I don't, I'm not sure I understood the question you were okay. going to ask. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's dive into this. So I've been thinking about this yeah. a lot with Memphis in particular and also Toronto. What, I'm going to leave it, like, super open-ended. Like, now that everybody plays super fast and pushes the ball up the court all the time and tries to get quick-hitting plays all the time, what exactly is the value of an individual? What does it mean to, like, have a possession? I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question the right way because it's just something I've been thinking about. Where Memphis and Toronto in particular are, like, teams that, through turnover-generating through crashing the offensive glass, through quick shots, they they think of it as they, they're trying to get more possessions than you, right? Even though, like, kind of in a statistical sense, a possession ends at a certain point, like from an analytical standpoint. It's either, it's when, sure. you know. So, but so much of the game now, I think, is played, like, kind of, like, what, maybe a better way to phrase the question is, when does offense end and defense begin? And if those two things are blurring together, what does that mean for all of our analytical, all of our analytics that are sort of possession-based? Do we need to rethink sure. those? You know, where, like, I didn't even think about, like, how Ben Falk separates out transition and half-court play. But to me, is there's a big difference between a half-court possession off a missed shot and a half-court possession off a made shot. Like, how do we make sense of all that? in not only building better, more interesting stats that reflect the game, but also just, like, analyzing the sport. You know, it's a big question to me. So there's, like, three different questions there. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the one, I mean, the first one that that you kind of initially started with is, like, certain teams wanting to play, you know, high possession count games. And I'm going to steal sort of uh, an approach that people, it seems like people have had some success with, with in hockey, um, and that there's sort of there's sort of two you know there's it's it's not a binary but there's kind of high event hockey and low event hockey 
you know, there's a lot of shot attempts, a lot of a lot of things going on, and there are teams that are better there. Um, the that the pace, if the game is played at a certain sort of tempo, um, the skill uh, like Toronto and Memphis think the skill sets of their players make tilt the advantage because it's like they're if they can play the speed they want to play and get you to play at that speed they think that the 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 relative you know the sort of the the uh you know the comparative advantage in, in you know to go you know ricardian economics or whatever uh is is in their favor whereas in a in a lower a lower possession count game the the value of each possession might shift more towards a you know a um, a Miami type of team, uh, where if you or or Boston perhaps, where if you start to grind and and things like that on both ends, they're better equipped to play that style of game. So I think it's not. Yeah, so it's, it's so it's, yeah, not, so it's like I think the the the, the mistake people make is saying, well, if I, we average one point one points per possession, why does it matter whether there's there's one hundred and five or ninety five? Well. Maybe maybe we average one point one two when it's one hundred and five, but we only average like one point oh five when it's ninety five, just based on how the the you know the skills of our players like interact with the opposition. So, so I think that's what's that's in, in numeric terms that's what's going on there. So here's my question then, because I, I agree with that, but possessions are like depend on each other because. Once you score, the other team gets it. And yeah. then, you know, there is like a finite, and there's a limit. They can't be more than 24 seconds until the ball hits the rim, whatever. Um, so, like, if, if one team is playing fast, the other team is going to play with more possessions just by virtue of that team playing fast. You know what I mean? Right? Yeah. So, just in terms of a possession. So, but when your strategy then becomes, you know, it's it's a – like what Toronto and Memphis do is that the way they play offense and the way they play defense feeds into, they feed into each other so that like, I think about Memphis a lot in this way, you know how like Memphis was always like team floater for many years. They would take the most floaters in the league. I think they may still part of the reason they, I mean, you know, I, I believe they do still, right. I don't remember what the number is, but I know like for, they were in the past, but part of the reason that like they they do that is not just because you don't have to consider just like how well they shoot on floaters. It's also they're advancing towards the rim, so you where you have to account for like they're putting more people in offensive rebound position. The ball is going to bounce more closer to the rim on average. So their strategy to get to shoot floaters, you have to account for the fact that like floaters. Maybe they, they're better at offensive rebounding, or at least they're better at sort of imposing their will of game so that it's harder for you to then run out on them or, you know, and so there's sort of like a cumulative effect. So I have a hard time understanding, like, trying to figure out, like, sort of how do I evaluate Memphis's first shot versus their next shot? And, like, does a possession end after the first shot versus the next shot? And what does that affect uh, on the next possession? You know, where if you're if you kind of commit too many players to the offensive class, then the other team can run. And so I just think that the, the con I'm sort of curious, like kind of what that does statistically to like, what do you consider the unit that you evaluate a possession based on when so much of the strategy seems to be tied together to like kind of this creating more possessions, you know, it's, it's almost like we're putting ourselves in a spatial position to be better at, doing the next part of the job when we shoot a floater rather sure. than, and if we make the floater great, but the real value of the floater versus like some other shot where we're willing to take that shot because at least we're going towards the basket and we're setting ourselves up for the next thing better. Like it's almost like floor balance in a different way. No, I, I, um, you know, if he, I mean, so whether you're looking at it, at, you know, traditionally, at least in the, in sort of the metric sense, we break things down into possessions, which up a possession ends when the ball changes possessions. So, or the chance level, which is, you know, chances. All right. I shoot, get my own rebound, shoot again. That's one possession and make the second one. That's one possession, but two chances. Um, and there are times that the, that, you know, that it makes more sense to use one unit of measure over the other. 
Um, but those those sort of depend on sort of how in terms of offensive system, um, you know, or offensive uh, uh, ethic, I guess. Like, yeah, there are two ways you can be better at offense. One is get more chances. The other is be more efficient with the chances that you do have. Um, and I think that, you know, you've mentioned two teams that, like, think that they are best off playing sort of high possession count, high chance, high number of chance level games because they think that in the wash of those extra chances and extra possessions, they have an advantage from a stylistic standpoint, from a script there. They have players who are more adept at uh, playing in a scrambled situation than their opposition. Um, and I think that, you know, to the extent those teams have success, I think that bears out. Yeah, I, I think that, and also I think more teams are thinking in those terms. Maybe that's just, I mean, if you, I'm just thinking back to the future, right? Like as we kind of move forward to uh, beyond. I mean, another way to think about this too is the Cleveland example we were just talking about earlier, where when they have all of their like kind of super tall guys and they're funneling you to the basket to, and they shut off the rim and then they grab that rebound and they blitz out the other way, that changes their offensive proficiency. But the strategy is starts in the defensive end. I'm always reminded of, um, you know, Bob Kloppenberg, the uh, Seattle, the former Sonic assistant coach, used to coach under George Carl. He used to talk, they used to have this like wild pressing scheme back in the 90s. You know, you remember what I'm talking about there um, with like Sean Camp and Gary Payton and whatever. He was like kind of the main assistant coach. People used to criticize us. The, the, the not at all illegal defense they played. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, I love those teams so much. They were so far ahead of their time. But he would be criticized a lot because he would say, why him and George Carl, they'd say, why do you work so much on your defense, you know, instead of fixing your offense? Like, why don't you try to, like, improve your half-court offense? And one of the responses that he would often say is, like, when we work on our defense, we are working on our offense because we are trying to make it so that we generate more turnovers to get easier baskets. Like, there are, our offense starts with our defense. Um, and so he would sort of di- didn't understand the premise of the question, where it's like, why would you separate the two out? And I just I sort of see like an interesting trend developing where there are more teams who are thinking, or at least in terms of how they're acting, they're acting in those terms. You know, they're more like sort of I I thought when the Lakers won the title, this was like the start of it. And I think Phoenix is really good at this too. Teams that like when they force a missed shot, they're not running fast breaks as much as they're trying to run ninety four by fifty foot half court possessions. And so then is that a transition opportunity? And does that require a certain defensive strategy and it's almost like a total court sort of thing. And so if you're trying to combat that, like, do you need to generate different types of shots? Not because the sun's defense is vulnerable to that, but because the sun's offense needs you to shoot certain types of shots to trigger this 94 by 50 game. I just, I think it's one of those things where like kind of, if, if that starts to be the strategic framework of a lot of these teams, I do think it makes you wonder like what, how do we measure like sort of, when a possession ends and when a possession begins from like an anal- analysis standpoint, like what does it mean to say that they have an offensive efficiency of whatever, I don't know, this number when so much of the offensive efficiency is sort of dependent on what chances they, their defense creates to give them their offensive head start. I, I realize I'm rambling here, but I just think it's interesting. I think Memphis in particular is like kind of an interesting test case, you know, for this, you know, this playoffs, like, it seems to me like they should not like be a contender, not just because of their youth, but because their half court offense is kind of shaky and they don't shoot the ball super well. And there's a school of thought that the way they play, like it's it, teams will be prepared for in the playoffs. But what if they're like super far ahead of the curve? I don't know. It's just something that I'm, I'm very curious to see how it plays out. So maybe, but it's also, I mean, I think that, that, um, something we're sort of hitting on here is I think some of the difference between regular season and playoff basketball in that both because teams are more dialed in, but also just because they're better. Like, you know, that, that notion of, well, we're making our offense better by making our defense better. Well, you're not, you're not playing against teams who are going to give you those opportunities as much. And it's, you know, it's, you know, we're not talking about a sea change. We're talking about, you know, two, four, six fewer of those opportunities a game. 
you know, that's not in the point. I'll say that matters. Right. A lot. Right. And so I that's think a that huge that's, difference. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's, you know, when, when you do worry about like a team, that's sort of the, we've shortened that to like, I don't know about Memphis's half court offense in the playoffs when the game slows down. It's not necessarily that the pace is going to be like much slower. It's just, there's going to be, you know, if they're, if they're a team that's based in part on taking advantage of opposition mistakes, both because of the, you know, the increased preparation, the increased intensity, but also just the higher opposition quality, there are going to be fewer mistakes to be taken, to be taken advantage of. Um, and so I think that that's, yeah. um, but the, I mean, the flip side of that is that's only, that's, that's sort of the mistakes are only sort of half of the Memphis um, uh, right. equation. The other half is, all right, we're going to, we're going to chuck the ball at the rim and then Stephen Adams is going to throw three people out of the way and, and we're going to get it back. Um, and, yeah. and so that, and that's, you know, to, that is more opponent quality agnostic, I think. Um, I, you know, there will be better defensive re- rebounding teams in the playoffs, but I think that they're better defensive rebounding teams in part because of the shots they induce, not just like they're intrinsically like, yeah, more rebounding though. They are that too. Yeah. So I don't like so I think there's something to what you're saying, but I do think that there are sort of countervailing factors going the other way, which may, means we have to watch and see which one out when which ones went out. Yeah, I, I'm just curious to see because I, I agree with you. Like I could see either scenario happening. To me, the way you beat Memphis, what I what I think Memphis is most vulnerable against is a team that just says, "Okay, we're going under on all these screens. We're just going to pack the lane. We're gonna." We're, it's not that we're going to take away your defensive rebounds, but we're going to take away all the shots that are easy that you defensive rebound well, and force you to take long shots. And that, like actually, the Clippers would be a really t- Clippers Grizzly series would be so fascinating. I think that's a that's not a matchup that I think Memphis wants. Whereas I know that Minnesota played Memphis well in the regular season, but if I'm Memphis, I want that matchup because that's a team that turns the ball over a lot. That's a team that's not that's not super great at a floor balance. That's a team that fouls. I think that's not a great defensive rebounding team. You know, it's a team that's scrambling. I, like, I think that's a much easier series for Memphis. But anyway, uh, I don't know. I just, it, so, so play. <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay, so here's another question then. I, I know we're going so yeah. far afield from the plan, but I just found this interesting. To the degree that we talk about like sort of what capitalizing on mistakes, do you think that Phoenix is a heavy favorite I'm starting to wonder if, like, they are closer to the field than their record indicates. No. I think they... I think that they um, are very balanced between being excellent at punishing mistakes and then also having the ability to, you know, cut into a a more set defense. Um, I think that's where... I mean, you know, assuming Chris Paul and Booker's health... Like, having two guys who can, you know, be efficient on bad shots um, has a, kind of has a way of then uh, lets them then get to their other players, lets them hit DeAndre Ayton on Duckins, lets them pitch the ball out to, you know, Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, Jay Crown and whoever else. And, you know, especially with, you know, Bridges and his improvement at, at drafting closeouts now too, like, you know, putting their, their guys in advantage situations and they need to be. So I think that they, I mean, I think that their record sort of accurately reflects that they're pretty good at both. I don't even think that they're like, you know, they aren't the fast breakiest team ever. So I don't think that they're like, they're not the death machine heat in terms of, of punishing bad offense the other way. I think they're good at it, but I don't think that that's like, I don't think that's what they hang their on. Okay. Uh, as someone, I, and you're, I realize you're kind of breaking up weirdly on me somehow. Um, so I don't know if I'm talking over you. Hopefully I'm not. But uh, what do you make of their clutch success um, as from like an analytical perspective? I mean, it, it seems like so often we've said like, yeah. oh, that that's a sign that the team is, is getting a little lucky. But Phoenix, of course, is lauded for how great they are in clutch situations. You know, their point differential is more like a, what, a 59-win team, something like that. Uh, and they've just been amazing clutch games. Is that a con- Does that concern you as something that, like, may may not carry over to the playoffs? Or is that something where you say that actually carries over super well to the playoffs? Like, how do you make sense of that? 
So broadly speaking, um, I, it's something that would be a concern in general. I think that there is a the mechanism by which Phoenix remains very good in the clutch, and I think that that also part of their 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 clutch record is the fact that like they tended, I believe, I have to look this up again. I looked I, I looked up you know teams left in the season that they you know the games that end up in clutch situations they're they were tending to uh, there's actually you know in terms of win probability it's a huge difference between going in to the last five minutes up five and uh, up four and down four and they they tended to win games got in right, clutch yeah, situations yeah. they they were already so they they were in a situation where they were you know they they were they were good at coming back and winning games but they were also good at you know getting to that spot so that they were already sort of you know, they they already had a slight lead in the, in the race, and so they were they were kind of playing defense. Um, you know, they were they were driving defensively, I guess, rather than having to overtake. Um, as says the the the, the newly minted F one fan. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> You're texting me about that recently. I, I gotta yeah. get into that. Yeah, no, uh, it's 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 like fast golf. It's incredible. Um, oh man. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I, that that makes sense to me. I, I you know, I, I don't. I mean, clearly, they're doing something right in the clutch. It's definitely nowhere near all luck. Like they have, and the way they did it, like they they picked apart teams in the playoffs last year this way. So I, I don't think it's completely random. I just wonder if it's maybe a sign that like the margin between them and the other teams is not as wide as the record suggests. I mean, there there are teams. I don't know how they do it in the clutch. And then there's the Suns. Well, the game is close. They play really good defense. They get a rebound. And then Chris Paul comes down the floor, dribbles around. Make even though you're trying to make him go left, he does a little inside out dribble. Gets two two hard dribbles. Gets to the right elbow. Leans all the way to his right and tosses in a 17 footer. And rinse repeat. Like that's yep. If one yeah. of, like like you know. So again, we we look at like the mechanism for how they get buckets in those in those tight situations like i think anyone listening to this can just picture the exact play like or one of 30 of the exact plays because he like does it so much like the, just like leaning out the window and you know tossing the ball in like that like he's been doing for 15 years and i think that's that you know that thing that uh that you know is more than a team that just happens to bang every three in, in the last five minutes of game. Yeah. Over no, I mean, and what they did to the Jazz the other night, like, it was just like, I mean, it was like a clinic. It was, I mean, I almost felt bad for Rudy Gobert. It was that bad. Uh, every time they're running that same stack, Spain pick and roll and just killing them. Uh, it's just amazing. Yeah. The, the what I'm with Phoenix, like, I wonder the one thing that sort of is interesting about them and, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm spoiling something I'm, I need to work on for 538. Cause I think the most important development for them is like, how well is Devin Booker shooting a pull up three? And this year he's been way better at it than he was last year. I think that's a major development because if you remember, I mean, correct me if my read on this series is wrong, but I interpreted their loss to Milwaukee and their office of problems as what Milwaukee's did was they said, all right, we know you're really good at making tough shots, like mid-range shots, pull-up mid-range shots. Like, you're the best in the league. That's all you're getting, and we're going to make those hard. We are going to take literally everything else away, and we are going to, because we are, we, and we are going to stay disciplined so that we're not going to take the bait, that your, your uh, tough shot making is not going to get us out of our base scheme. And that's how they turn that series around, you know. I just think the the craziest stat of that series is Devin Booker gets 42 points and has like no assists or potential assists in that was that game five or game four to me, like that's their, that was the best, the blueprint and they have slightly better capability of doing that. But, you know, it is still an offense that like, you know, bridges is a little bit better uh, for sure at creating his own shot. And that's going to be meaningful. Aiden is a little bit better at ducking in. They're like sort of a slightly better version of what they were, and that may be enough. But I do still feel like there's like some structural challenges where if you're able to take away the runout type threes and you're able to sort of be very disciplined in how you defend, and I think teams with big, big centers are going to give them some trouble. Like, I mean, Utah, I think, is a problematic matchup. I don't think Utah would ever beat them, but, you know, because of the crunch time thing. But, 
you know, I think if they get Dallas and Lucas healthy, that's a scary matchup too. If you can take away sort of the swing swing and the sort of fluidity of their offense, and you just say, all right, Chris Paul and Devin Booker, like we're just going to make your life really hard and you're going to have to win the game for us. I, I don't know if they can do that, but their marginal differences may be enough to put them all the way over the top. That's sort of where I'm kind of wondering because, you know, Memphis is, I, I mean, I know Memphis, I, I don't know if Memphis is going to get there, but like, and I think that Memphis, maybe there's an experience factor that Phoenix will take advantage of. I don't like that matchup for Phoenix at all. Like, I think Memphis is the type of team that can play the Bucks style, like sort of drop and get rid of everybody else and then run off to all that and just physically wear them down. Like that matchup would scare me. Um, so I thought contemporaneously, I thought that the Bucks sort of baited Booker into indulging in some of his worst impulses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I think that, I think part of it was he could have gotten better looks, uh, himself. Okay. Like he could have gotten, he could have gotten to the basketball. He could have gotten to the free throw line more. He could have, you know, okay. Oh, you're going to leave me on an Island against PJ Tucker. Okay. Like, yeah, I can get to the elbow and pull up, or I can get all the way to the basket and either score, get fouled, or make you bring a second guy to me more. And I think that's, uh, I think that was sort of, I think there's a learning curve there, like for Booker's first time being deep in the playoffs, that I think that that might have some application to this year. Yeah. So you know, I, it, so I think you're right. It might be like his, he, that was his final test, and now he's like sort of yeah. there. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I mean, the like reason the he balance, was making bad the, the, decisions because they were physical with him. They were bumping him all the time. But now you're right. I think maybe that experience may prove pivotal in getting him over the top. Yeah, for sure. No, the, the, like the, the balance between, okay, it's takeover time versus playing our offense. Like, that's a, that's a, that's a learned balance. Like, this is, this is something that, that and I, I've talked about this a bunch. Like, the, the notion of you need to learn how to win the playoffs. Like, I thought that was bullshit until I experienced it. And, you know, and then I, yeah, like, yeah. like when we got to the conference finals against Toronto, like, uh, and, uh, like, I, I felt like I've, I've, you know, good friends with some people on the Raptors staff, and I, I could just tell that they knew things about being in that spot that we didn't. And, um, yeah. You know, having, and, and so I think that there is sort of that, having to have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, like that's, that's a, that's a growth factor. Uh, and I think, so I think that, you know, the experience of last year will be useful both for Booker himself. And then also as, you know, a coaching point, but it wore a team, like, you know, Chris Paul can be like, well, okay, you know, let's, you know, remember what happened. It's not, or Monty Williams can be, you know, all right, let's stick to our thing. And, and it can stick a little bit because like, yeah, I got mine, but we lost. Um, and that's that that's that sort of provides some uh, some some beneficial feedback for them. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is is poise ultimately, you know, and and some of it is like kind of having a plan B from some perspective, but some of it is also it sounds like it's sort of you know when your plan A doesn't come as easily, like how do you respond to that adversity? Do you stick? Do you continue to execute? Do you continue to have like sort of the mental fortitude to not fall into the trap? Do you still have the ability to control the game? You know, and you're right. I mean, that's something that is very hard to get. Yeah. I mean, I, I, all in all, I am very curious to see because Phoenix had like that experience on such a visceral level last year, like what that will do to them. I mean, I, my, my lean is that ultimately is like you, they will, they will persevere because of that. I just I look at some of the potential matchups they could have, and I just see a lot of teams that could could bother them. You know, I guess maybe we'll see what happens with Luca, but you know, Dallas is a team that defensively closes space as well as any in the league. You know, I, I wonder, and they're a great tempo team too. I mean, that's the thing about Dallas they they really they don't let you get runouts. I mean, if that's the series you get, that's going to be a really tough series for them, I think. And then Golden State or Memphis, I think that's going to be a really tough series. Uh, and then, you know, like the East, who knows, if they get Milwaukee again, we know that's going to be a really tough series. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the East is just sort of a big shrug to me at this point. I have no idea what to think about any of how it's going to play out <laughs> at that, this point. Sure. So, kept you for about an hour. Uh, we, we broke down the plan a little bit. 
we went for, for no for as, as like the play is great let's talk about it and by talk about it i mean talk about nothing out but the, yeah. the playoffs themselves i know so i'm sorry i'm sorry no, that's everybody right. kind of like yeah sort of was hope. i just whenever we talk i feel like i just want to ask these sort of big questions about because you you think about this stuff like in a way that nobody else does. So, I don't know. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I'm I'm totally pleased with where this went. But before we go, like you know, I think, I mean, I'm leaning Clippers Nets tonight. Would you Would you agree that those are those are those are going to be the seven seeds more likely than not? That's where I'm leaning as well. I actually uh, posted. I don't know if you I, right before the show. I posted like a highly specific tweet of like how I think all these games will go. Um, like I had like the 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 Brooklyn Cleveland game is gonna go basically like the game they've just played except flip the quarters. I feel like the Clippers Wolves is a classic. Uh, Clippers jump on them early. Tim Roll spend the entire game playing catch up. They get to within like a possession in the fourth quarter, and then the Clippers shut them down. Doesn't that feel like and that type of game? They get it to within two, and Anthony Edwards jacks a bad yep. step back three. Yeah, and then and then they get a dunk the other way, and and then. And it, it never get they never get to have the ball to tie again. Yeah, Paul George hits some dagger with like a minute fifteen left on a step back three to give the Clippers a seven point lead, and he he stares at the crowd and gives them some sort of sign. That just it feels like that kind of game. Uh, for sure. No, you know what the, you know what it is, it is like if we're if we're if we're talking like pain, like the infliction of pain. Marcus Morris hitting a contested three as the shot clock goes off. Ooh. Like that's yeah. like and like staring right at Pat Beverly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God. yeah. I think it's gonna be a really chippy game. Uh but yeah, I, I agree with you. Um and as far as the the next games, like I, I mean I think Hawks Hornets might be I was it, that might be the most playing game of all possible playing games. Like I don't I, think we're gonna I, have a I playing game that, like that. <laughs> I think the Hawks are gonna win by about twenty five. Really? Like the yeah, no, the the, the Hornets like at no point have they shown the propensity to slow anybody down defensively. And, like, I kind of feel like the Hawks, like, get it. Well, we're here. We're not bored anymore. Let's get it together. Um, whether that ultimately, like, is enough to beat Cleveland, I think, in the in the, the, the eight-seed game, um, I don't know. But I just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, maybe it's they got, they got, you know, Molly Wapped in the in the the plan last year as well. I don't have a lot of faith in in Charlotte right now. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess we'll find out. I mean, I just feel like that's the kind of game that like kind of could have wild swings because I honestly like the Hawks are kind of a they're not a they're a team that blows leads, makes yeah. bad possessions. You know, gives up a lot of points. Charlotte's a team that does all those. Trey's things. the best player on the floor by so much, though. Yeah, I mean. In the regular season, those teams play like some wacky barn burners. I yeah. just maybe I'm just holding out hope that we get more of that. And also, I'm not the biggest Trey Young fan, but that's... I, I mean, n- neither neither am I. But he's the best <laughs> player on those team two teams by a wide margin. And like, yeah, you know, and plus that probably yeah that game probably has the widest possible outcome because I could see I agree with you I could totally see the Hawks just like making fifty uh, percent of their threes and just blowing the game open. Because they have that capability, or even like forty percent of their threes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm holding out hope that that game is wild. And then I don't know how you feel about the Pelican Spurs. I just I'm rooting for the Pelicans, man. I really want to. I would love to see that team in the playoffs. I think they have some interesting things they do. I really I think Willie Green's a really underrated coach. I just don't know if they can beat both Minnesota, or both win that game and beat Minnesota. Or, or the Clippers, that might be too uphill a climb. But I, I, just I think, think I think they would much rather see Minnesota than they would the Clippers. I agree with that. Well, although the, I agree, although the Pelicans played the Clippers tough this year. I don't know if that, what that means, but it's it's hard to take anything away from like any of the Clippers matchups. But the Clippers had a lot of problems with the I think New Orleans size, and you know I thought Herb Jones did a good job and Paul George. I don't know. It, I agree with you, like, in a one-game setting, like, there's – and on the road. But it's, it has me interested, at least. That's fair. Yeah. Well, and I just they... I, I just think the Pelicans have some, some interesting stylistic things they can do, too. Like, a Phoenix-New Orleans first-round series 
the master versus the pupil in the coaching matchup. Like, I just think that would be yeah. interesting. I mean, the, the funny, the funny thing is, like Pelican, if, Pel- if it ended up being Pelicans Clippers, it's just like, I wonder if, if, like, you know, thirteen months from now, we're looking, we're looking at that as a possible, you know, assuming you know healthy returns from Zion and Kawhi, are we looking at that as like a second round or conference finals? Pre- like, remember when these two teams played with with neither team having their best player, and it was a good game. But that's that's looking yeah. way far ahead. Right. Uh, it's funny how these things foreshadow. I mean, I think it looks like we're probably going to get a. I mean, there's a very good chance we get Grizzlies Warriors after last year's playing in the second round. Like that to me, like taking us all for a circle. That's the cool thing about the playing is that you kind of catch these teams at a certain spot, you know, on the up and up, and it just adds to the longer rivalry. Like. How much better would a Grizzlies Warriors series be, knowing the texture of last year's playing game? Yeah, I just think it's awesome. No, it's, it's I mean, just I mean, there's going to go into that with the narrative. It's like, oh man, they, you know, yeah, Steph had what do you have, 38 in that game, but they made him work. Yeah, um, couldn't stop. Like Dylan Brooks did a great. Couldn't stop John Morant. You know. Yeah, yeah. Dylan Brooks is the Steph stopper. Is there, oh yeah. Go. Oh yeah. That's that's that'll be fun times. Um, yeah. Before I, before I before I start slandering Dylan Brooks, it's probably a good good spot to wrap up. <laughs> um, uh, think uh, before I let you go, just uh, like you know, one more time, if you want to uh, you know plug the book and tell uh, folks where they can pre-order it, um, uh, we'll get you out of here on that note. Yeah, it's uh, called Spaced Out. Uh, what is the subhead? It's a long subhead, and I forget what exactly the wording is. Even though I came up with it, you know how that goes. Okay, Spaced Out. How the NBA's three-point revolution changed everything you thought you knew about basketball. Coming November 1st, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it direct from the publisher. You can get it from bookshop.org, so you can order from your favorite uh, local bookstore. I know I personally would love to see that. Um, and, yeah, it's um, it's supposed to come out November 1st. I think it's it, – I think I, I structure it so it should be for all types of NBA fans. You know, it is there is X's and O's in there, but there's also a lot of history. There's some analytics stuff. There's a lot of sort of biomechanical stuff, particularly in the last few chapters. You know, I, the goal is like kind of let's let's try to rethink what we thought we knew about the game and let's kind of reimagine it. And I think if you're open to doing that, you know. It's, it's a book for you and and obviously your book was a great inspiration i think i cheated off you a lot uh since you were very kind to send like advanced copies of your book too so if you liked if you like Seth's book i think it's a great companion so um yeah thank you so much for having me and for all the support and help you provided throughout this book writing process it's a great time um, I will say though, though, if you haven't read my book either, I bet you that you can you can find a, a bundle on Amazon to get both of them. Ooh, yeah, um, probably can. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should talk to well. We should talk to Triumph about that. Actually, that would yeah, be a good maybe, idea. Dude, maybe maybe if if the world cooperates, even do an event or two together when yours come out. That would be amazing. Because yeah, um, that's it. that's around when the paperback of mine will come out. Um, oh, that anyway, would be, that's enough. So cool. co- yes, <laughs> uh, en- enough commerce talk. Uh, Mike Prada, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks, folks, for listening. I think I am back on Thursday to um, discuss the imminent demise of this iteration of the Utah Jazz with Sarah Todd. Um, I think that what you know, maybe it's premature, but we're all sort of expecting it to happen after this postseason. So we're going to get a head start on it and talk about it on Thursday. So uh, thanks a lot for listening, folks, and talk to you all then. Take care.